electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. With the collapse and turmoil of FTX, will this have any implications on non-crypto markets? On this episode, you'll hear from Bitfury Group CEO Brian Brooks. Bitfury Group is a full-service blockchain technology company. Previously, Brooks served as acting comptroller of the currency, supervising the banks that comprise 70% of all banking activity in the United States. Brooks spoke with CNBC technology reporter Kate Rooney at CNBC's Financial Advisors Summit on December 6, 2022, about the FTX collapse and its implications for the overall crypto market, how customers can do their due diligence before investing, and Coinbase investments and investment strategies in the current market. Here's their conversation. I want to start with Jamie Dimon. He said this morning on Squawk Box that crypto is a total sideshow and the tokens are like pet rocks. Brian, first of all, what do you say to that? And what does that mean for people watching whose clients might have invested in crypto and need to know a little bit more about this asset class and how they should handle it going forward? Yeah, you you know, um, Kate, there was a time when I used to read a lot of Anthony Trollope. You know, he was an English writer who wrote back in in the late 19th century when there were all kinds of asset bubbles and speculation around various new technologies like like railroads. And what some of the characters in those novels used to say was that stocks are a fraud. And if you think about it, there's a fair number of stocks out there that have been shown to be frauds over the years. You know, people who invested in WorldCom, Enron, you know, or in a different era, you know, some of the railroad stocks of the of the early uh, 1900s um, saw those go to zero because they literally were frauds. And yet nobody thinks stocks are frauds. And what I would say about crypto is crypto is a gigantic category of thousands of technology projects. And you know what? Some of them are, and I've said this a million times, some of them are certainly frauds and some of them are certainly going to zero. Now, in the case of FTX, and I know we're going to talk about that in detail, you know, FTX was was a fraud scheme. Uh, It had nothing to do with crypto. It was the kind of fraud scheme that we've seen again and again in other kinds of traditional financial companies. You had a guy who was using customer assets to day trade. And uh, those assets could have been stocks, they could have been fixed income, could have been crypto. But when Jamie says that crypto is a sideshow, I I don't know what he means. Bitcoin is clearly not a sideshow. Um, It's possible that the serum token is a sideshow. Who who can say? And we can talk a little bit about how a financial advisor should assess that. But there's way too much going on here to lump all of it together and say it's a sideshow. That's just a that's that's reductionist at best. Let's get your take on FTX. Um, Most people likely know and I don't know if people have followed this story. If not, um, you've got a lot of reading to do. But uh, <laughs> I wonder what your take is on on the implications for this industry as a whole. What are your broad thoughts on what this means for cryptocurrency? Sam Bankman-Fried really was yeah. one of the trusted voices here. Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about it is it's funny how quickly in crypto one can go from being one of the most trusted voices to being you know, a, a pariah. I mean, no one had ever heard Sam's name three years ago. 
And then six months ago, he was one of the most trusted voices. And today he's a pariah. So I would say that crypto got built long before Sam came along and it'll keep getting built. What I think the the short term implications of FTX are, are, are just this. OK, unlike equities and debt, crypto is almost entirely a retail market. And that is because, you know, BlackRock hasn't gone all in, you know, the major fund managers and asset managers aren't all in. So it's a 90% retail market, which means the sentiment of mom and pop investors really matters. And so when you read FTX stories on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, literally every day for the last 30 days, and when I say literally, I mean every single Wall Street Journal issue in the last 30 days has had FTX on the front page, including this morning. What it, what it does is for relative new entrants, they get scared. And so as a result, liquidity is thinner than it would have been. People's willingness to invest is lower. And so it means that prices are lower. Uh, the people I know who are Bitcoin and Ethereum investors, which are the two most important tokens and the two longest standing tokens, believe this is a super cheap buying opportunity. And obviously, I'm not giving financial advice. That's for the audience to do uh, to their clients. But for those people, they think, gee, Bitcoin's not going anywhere. It continues to perform according to its historical four-year trading pattern. Um, but the short term is people are scared. You, you read frightening things about fraudsters and you pull back, sort of like in the internet bubble, the stock market was down for six months broadly because retail investors were just super scared. Are there pockets of opportunity? I know you mentioned you're not giving investment advice per se, but are there areas that you think have long-term viability and are appropriate, not a sideshow for a mainstream portfolio at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just tell you how I think about it, okay? The way I think about it is <clears throat> the real point of crypto is to develop decentralized solutions for financial activities that are currently centralized. And so if you look at the projects that have succeeded versus failed in the last six months, all of the projects that failed um, were centralized projects. They, they, they were projects where there was some founder or some CEO who at a certain point either screwed up or engaged in fraud. So FTX, Flat out fraud, stole customer funds and used them for day trading. You know, Celsius, it was a hedge fund that made some bad bets. They had an investment committee and they were long when they should have been short. Okay. Um, you know, Terra, same thing. The founder couldn't come up with assets fast enough to shore up his reference token. So those were all projects where some human being screwed up. And we know what that looks like from traditional finance. The projects that have done well were legitimate decentralized projects. And so some of the examples would be MakerDAO and Compound. You know, these are actual DeFi protocols that are truly algorithmic and are not managed by a management team. And those things didn't have a run on the bank and they're holding up very nicely. So it's all about decentralization. And if you find a project that's really doing that, that's worth looking at. I wonder, Brian, for the average investor, it seems like that that is true. A lot of these projects held up and it was the fault in a lot of cases of, of centralized parties, bad actors, fraud. Yep. But how do, can people do diligence and know the difference? Because sometimes the on-ramps are really the only way the average person can invest here or tell their clients to invest. I wonder how you recommend that people do diligence if they're not you know, a, a blockchain engineer, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there are kind of two components to your question, I think, Kate. So one is how do you diligence the investments themselves? And then there's the question, and this was the FTX question, how do you diligence the exchange that is your on-ramp? Okay, and those are two totally different questions. So when it comes to the investment, you know, to me, it's, it's the same way, you know, when people were deciding, gee, do I want to invest in Microsoft or Netscape, you know, in the early internet browser wars? Different people had different theses on that. And that's what markets do. 
at, at the end of the day. So some people said Microsoft will win because it owns the boxes and others said Netscape will win because it's open source. And in the end, it turned out the Microsoft people were bright, at least for, for a period of time. That That's true in crypto, no less than any other place. You've got to figure out what is your thesis and, and then you identify what's going on in the technology. My thesis is decentralized networks will win. The other stuff is all noise. Like that's where I agree with Jamie. The, the stuff that's, you know, these hedge fund projects or lending projects, that's, that's noise. But decentralized networks, that's not. Then there's the issue of what do you do to be safe? And the problem with crypto is there's no market structure rule um, anywhere in the world, but certainly not in the United States. And what I mean by that is, Normally, when you invest in a security, you know, you have a broker dealer, you have an exchange and you have a custodian. And those are three different things. And so I don't have to care. Like I have a Charles Schwab account. I don't have to care if Charles Schwab goes down because they're just my broker dealer. Once I've bought the stock, the stock is at DTCC, a third party custodian, and they don't care if Charles Schwab goes down. They are protecting me from somebody stealing my securities there. In crypto, that's not happening. And so what crypto people do to secure their assets is they either move their assets <clears throat> to a wallet that is not affiliated with their broker, or they sometimes even put it in a hardware wallet, which I know sounds complicated. But until there's market structure, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things people have to do. And just one very last quick point. I know I'm filibustering. But the last point I will say is when I was controller of the currency, we did one really important thing. <clears throat> and that is we chartered three banks whose business was to be a crypto custodian separate from the trading activity. That was the whole point of us chartering Anchorage, Paxos, and Protego Bank, was to allow market structure to come into existence. And those banks are now doing what I just described, which is safekeeping your clients' assets. And Brian, we talked a bit about the short-term implications. You, Like you mentioned, you were the head of the OCC. What's your take on where this leads us in Washington? Uh, whether it's a change in market structure, that, like you just described, or different type of types of regulation than maybe uh, the industry was looking for you know, six or 12 months ago. Yeah, well, so what I think is, first of all, the short-term politics of this are not going to be pretty. I, I think that Senator Brown, Senator Warren, and, and people on that side, the, the leaders on the Senate Banking Committee, <clears throat> have always been hostile to crypto, and this gives them the exact message they need to try and eliminate uh, you know, crypto as much as they possibly can. And, and so you're not going to see, at least in the early days, constructive politics coming from that side, I don't think. I think their view is people got fleeced and we need to get rid of this activity before it gets too big. On the Republican side of the aisle, um, you know, Republicans have generally tended to be more supportive of crypto for a bunch of reasons we could get into. There you will see a push for market structure regs. So I think that they will be pushing for stablecoin legislation. They will be pushing for market structure that separates out the centralized exchanges into the broker exchange and custodian component that I talked about. They'll push for that. And I think it'll be deep into the next Congress before you get a consensus. But in the early going, it's going to be super hostile for crypto. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to white knuckle our way through it. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
We do have some questions here I want to get to as well. Um, one from Matthew Gladbach, Gladbach uh, about contagion for FTX. And I think that's a broader question in the industry. People are looking for the next shoe to drop. Grayscale and GBTC have been a big area of focus. GBTC, the Bitcoin trust that has become a pretty popular proxy for people getting Bitcoin exposure, trading at more than a 40% discount. Any thoughts on areas of concern and what this means for other big players that um, are public investment vehicles at this point? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So, so what I would say is, you know, there are two kinds of contagion coming out of FTX, I believe. There's the direct contagion, right, which is there's real counterparty risk to their failure. So, for example, they had bid to buy BlockFi. BlockFi is now without a bidder. They had bid to buy Voyager. Voyager is now without a bidder. Then there's the indirect stuff, which this is an example of. So, yes, what's now going on is people are like people in the Bitcoin world are thinking, if I'm going to hold GBTC, I'm exposed to the same kind of custodial risk I was at FTX, which means that stuff could vanish. It could be vaporware. Uh, so I'd rather buy Bitcoin directly and hold it in my hardware wallet where nobody can take it than have Grayscale manage it. Remember, one of Grayscale's affiliates is Genesis, which also is facing bankruptcy, absent a bailout, right? So people are getting very concerned about the centralized administrators of crypto. They don't trust them. And so you'd expect to see that. Another example of a knock-on effect in the investment markets, though, is just look at Coinbase stock. I mean, Coinbase went public at an $88 billion valuation, and I haven't looked at it in the last few days, but 10 days ago when last I checked, Coinbase's valuation was at $9 billion, which is about 90% down from the peak. That's where it was when I worked there five years ago. Okay, so a lot of value has been erased in the investment markets because of this kind of retail fear factor that I'm talking about. So you've got both kinds of problems. What needs to happen for that fear factor to go away in retail, especially that is so important, like you mentioned, to this pretty new market? Yeah. Well, I, I think a couple of things have to happen. First of all, we have to resolve the debate between are we trying to ban crypto or keep it in a box on the one hand versus are we trying to provide a reasonable market structure that allows this important activity to flourish in a way that doesn't endanger people. Right. And, and you, you're not going to have clarity on that for a year. For the next year, believe me, you will have hearing after hearing where you're going to hear about shadowy super coders and fraudsters and Sam Bankman-Fried will be indicted and there will be all kinds of things that will happen. None of that's going to be good. It's going to be a rocky year. But the second thing that I think has to happen is <clears throat> whether it's voluntarily or whether it is through regulatory compulsion, you're going to need people to get comfortable that once I've bought the Bitcoin from Gemini or Coinbase or whomever, I can store it somewhere safely where even if even if my broker goes bankrupt or even if it turns out that they're run by a bad guy, my Bitcoin is safe. In the banking system, you know, the FDIC provides you that assurance. In the securities section or you know, sector, CIPIC plus market structure rules provide that protection. But in the world of crypto, there's nothing giving you that protection. That that has to happen. What would be your takeaways for the average investor based on what's happened with FTX? Is it a change in how you custody your assets? I wonder if if there's some news you can use uh, for these financial advisors yeah. to Look, pass I, on to their own clients. I, I think custody is 100% the issue. And, and you know, again, I when I talk about it, it sounds complicated, but it's really a little bit less complicated than people think. I'll just give you a really simple example that I know about, okay? If you buy a Bitcoin at Coinbase, you can, you can buy it and it'll sit there on the Coinbase platform and you're essentially a creditor of Coinbase at that point, right? But what you can very easily do is there's a different app in the App Store called Coinbase Wallet. And that's, the, despite the name, that has nothing to do with the Coinbase exchange. It's a piece of software. And you can move your Bitcoin off of the Coinbase exchange and into your wallet on your phone. 
and now you control it. So whether Coinbase goes bankrupt or not has nothing to do with the safety of it inside of your wallet. That's a discipline that people are going to need to start doing. Like in the olden days, before DTCC, you know, in our grandparents' day, they had their stock certificates and they kept them in a safe deposit box. And for generations, people were comfortable doing that. We have to do the same thing in crypto now until we get more comfortable that these third-party custodians are going to make it. There's also some questions I want to get to here as well, Brian. Uh, one from Gretchen Pillar uh, about crypto being necessary to access blockchain. Um, there's a lot of talk about that as a sort of amorphous technology, but is it possible to, to access that, to have that flourish um, without cryptocurrencies? No. <laughs> so let me explain what I mean by that. Like a lot of these questions, there are two dimensions to the question. So first of all, a blockchain can't exist without an underlying crypto token. And what I mean by that is the, a blockchain is a decentralized network. It's a, it's a group of unaffiliated computers validating transactions or doing some other kind of consensus mechanism. And the only way to induce multiple unaffiliated people to join up on a network is to, is to pay them. And the token is what pays them. So, for example, without Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain couldn't exist because no one would do the work of validating those transactions and connecting their computers. So the first answer is there's no such thing as blockchain without Bitcoin. It, it can't exist. Second, there are some kinds of blockchains that have governance functions. So you may have heard about things called governance tokens. When people talk about accessing the blockchain, that's really maybe what they're talking about, which is, hey, if I want to participate in this network, I have to hold tokens because that's how I decide whether the next group of transactions will be approved or whether we're going to change the code in some way or whatever. But I think the most important question to understand is you cannot have a blockchain without an underlying native crypto token. No such thing as that. A question as well from Garrett, or excuse me, Aaron Garrett here um, that talks about the get rich quick FOMO schemes and um, He's asking if that has hurt the technology we just talked about. I wonder how far, if at all, it's set back uh, blockchain technology. He also asks here about uh, some analogies to the dot-com bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, well, so I, I think that the dot-com bubble is actually a really, really apt analogy. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is when the dot-com bubble burst, you know, there was carnage across the landscape but not universal carnage. What, what happened was the, the really stupid ideas, the ideas that were no better on the internet than not, like barbecue.com, cars.com, pets.com, right? Those went away. But Amazon and Google didn't go away. They, they were just emerging at that time and they flourished enormously. The thing here is, you know, when you talk about altcoins, which is what the, what the question is talking about, I mean, that's, again, that's like saying stocks in general are a fraud. There are a lot of tokens out there that are really stupid. <clears throat> and then there are a bunch of tokens that aren't really stupid, but they're competing for one slot. Okay, Much the same way, we had a lot of legitimate internet companies trying to be the browser. In the end, Google won the search war, but it wasn't obvious they would win. There was a time you know, when Yahoo was a credible competitor, and so was AltaVista, and so were some other companies. Only one survived, however. And it's the same thing here. So like in the world of financial services, you've got Solana and Cardano and Avalanche and Ethereum all competing for a legitimate role. One of those will be the smart contracting platform for the future of finance. I don't know for sure which one it will be, but it will be one. And the ones that fail aren't scams. They're, you know, Yahoo was not a scam. It just didn't win the race at the end of the day. MySpace, not a scam. It just lost in the end. And that's what you're dealing with here. So you have to do the research and have a thesis for why you think one of them is going to be the winner. And is it too soon to tell? You sort of alluded to that, that there's there may be a winner, but we don't know 
which one that is. Where would you say we are um, if we're using the dot-com analogy? Are we are you even in the 90s yet, or is it too early to even... <laughs> No, look, I, I, I think we're definitely in the 90s in, in some areas. I mean, there's some frontier areas of crypto, Kate, where like, who knows, who even knows, what, like, you know, people, people look at NFTs, and some people believe that these are, these are great credit tools for authenticating, you know, who the borrower is, and other people think they're artworks. I mean, it's hard to say. But in the world that most people on this call know best, which is the world of financial services, I, I, I think we have some ways of thinking through who's going to be the winner. So the way I think through it is, okay, well, which, which smart contract blockchain has the most developer activity on it? That, that's one indication that it's going to succeed. And the answer to that is clearly Ethereum, right? Second choice might be Binance Smart Chain. You know, they have a lot of developers. Uh, hard to know how many of those are associated with that company, but, you know, they have a lot of dev activity. So that's one metric. <clears throat> Another metric is looking at gas fees. How expensive is that network? By that measure, Ethereum is super expensive. And uh, maybe it's going to lose because of that. And maybe Solana will win because it's less expensive. And then yet another is throughput and processing speed. So, you know, if I'm an investment analyst, I'm going to look at those and ask myself which one of those things is going to be the driver of adoption long term. And that's where I put my money. But it's no different from stock analysis, you know. And Brian, we'll have to wrap up in a second here. But there's a great question from Scott about fund managers uh, whether it's Kathy Wood, uh, Tom Lee has called for 100,000 per coin when it comes to Bitcoin. Is there a path to 100,000 per coin? And if so, how do we get there? Yeah, well, I, I mean, ab absolutely. Uh, absolutely, there is. I mean, look, you know, Bitcoin was trading at 69,000 um, just about a year ago. And so, I mean, unless you think that was the all-time high of an asset that is supply limited and has increasing user adoption, I mean, of course it will get to 100,000. It's sort of like in 1980, when I was first figuring out what the stock market was, people used to say, would the Dow ever reach 5,000? And a lot of people said, that could never reach 5,000, right? I mean, Bitcoin is limited in supply. Its adoption rate is up. Its purpose is as a protection against bad macroeconomic policy, which God knows we're certainly living through. So typically it follows a cycle and all of the charts suggest it's right following the cycle right now. It's roughly around the nadir of what the historical cycle would predict. It's a four-year cycle. The next halving, right, when the rate of Bitcoin release is cut in half is in 2024. What I would expect is Bitcoin will be relatively flat for the next 12 months or so. We'll start climbing in advance of the halving and then we'll increase. What day it gets to 100,000, I don't know, but I'm strongly of the view that it will. That was Bitfury Group CEO Brian Brooks. He spoke with us at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit on December 6th, 2022. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share with your friends. You can visit CNBCEvents.com to learn about upcoming events and how you can join us. We'd love to see you there. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.